Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode we are talking about Stephen King double feature, The Dark Half, and Needful Things. I'm your host Michael, and Kersey's on the other side. Hey, how's it going? You know, I always introduce it that way. You could be the host, I could be the sidekick. Who are we kidding? <laughs> nah, nah, that doesn't work out. Uh, don't let me steer this car, <laughs> I'm drunk. <laughs> um, so... This is kind of, like we talked about this before, the 90s is kind of a hit and miss with a lot of horror, and a lot of it was trying to copy, uh, like, the Freddy pastiche, but it was failing horribly. But the other thing that was successful during the 90s was the Stephen King, like, Clive Barker, like, the novel adaptations. Some successful, some not successful. I actually think this is almost a perfect double feature. Both bombed, but I, I actually think they're absolutely magnificent. I would uh, I would say the dark half is 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 really good. I would disagree on needful things. I think it I think it has a lot of potential, but just kind of fell short. I don't know. I absolutely adored it. I didn't like either one when I saw them when I was younger because I think I was trained for more, uh, you know, like the way it was with slashers and stuff like that, where it's real quick build and, and burn instead of like the slow build up. You get to know the characters. You understand why this is happening. You care about what's happening. And I, as a teenager, yeah. I just wanted that that ADD kind of release, like every ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the interesting thing: is I didn't notice this until I was reading up on it. The Dark Half is a prequel to Needful Things. Yeah, you were saying something about that off air. So yeah. let's let's. Uh, do you want to jump into that right now, or do you want to wait until we've reviewed one and then do the transition to the other? Uh, no, I'll just say now. Do you remember in Needful Things when he says that he left the city because he couldn't stand the chaos, and that's why he moved to a small, small town because he thought it'd be safer? We're talking about uh, Ed, oh, man, what is that? Ed Harris. I want Ed Harris. I keep wanting to say Ed Helms. I know that's not his name. <laughs> It'd be a lot different movie <laughs> if it was Ed Helms. <laughs> the um, um, yeah, yeah. So his character is played by Michael Rooker in The Dark Half, and that's what he's talking about, is that's in the city. So that yeah, makes so much more sense. It, it's so interesting, like, okay, because that's how it was so... I had to ask somebody, though, to make sure that was the correct timeline, because she's, uh, she's like a Stephen King aficionado, and she told me, yeah, that's how it worked. Um, so this, is, this movie was a little complicated because it sat on the shelf for three years, and when it was finally released, Orion Pictures had been bankrupt, and they had hardly any money. So it's bare. It got released wide, but with no promotion. And it's kind of sad because I think it got buried, and it, it shouldn't have been. Yeah, we're talking about uh... the Dark Half. Yeah. Okay. And um, I think this kind of hurt George Romero personally because. You know, he he had struggles getting a lot of movies in production, and he was always seems to have to go back to the horror well, and he never really got to move beyond that because he did. So it was it was Dawn of the Dead, and then Night Riders, which have you seen that one? It's like the medieval one with Ed Harris. And uh, no, I don't think so. Well, it's not medieval. It's they're Renaissance Fair guys that are bikers, and they treat that like the horses, and they would have their. It's it's, it's a character piece. It has a cult okay. following, but it didn't make a dime. So then, you know, he goes back to doing a horror game. He does Creep Show. He does Dawn of the Dead, Monkey Shines. And around this time, he, he started producing, like, Tales from the Dark Side and stuff like that. And it looked like he wanted to move on from horror. But just nobody would let him because he just couldn't. Even horror was starting to fail at the box office for him. And he went 10 years without making another movie after this. And 
I, I think part of him was just burned out on being forced to do the same genre over and over and over. Which is incredibly frustrating because, I mean, even if you're not really a fan of this movie, I don't think you can deny that, like, the the movie itself is shot extremely well. Oh, yeah. Well, and he gets really good performances out of these. I mean, Timothy Hutton must have really cherished playing two completely different characters, but yet still the same character. And if you haven't well, seen... Well, actually, yeah, that's the thing. It's like you, you would assume that because, it, you know, it's literally a dark half, it's about split personalities or it's about you know like two two parts of yourself but like they're they're really a lot more connected uh than you think uh when watching it yeah and and of course this is just another metaphor stephen king was working a lot of shit out um yes and and i heard someone say that his best stuff was when he was on drugs and i i actually find it more interesting when he's dealing with the post addictions because, you know, he talks yeah. of, well, Shining is in the middle there somewhere, where he was, he was drinking, but he hadn't switched to Coke yet, and uh, that's when he was dealing with, like, that split personality, and he, and he revisits that a lot, because he does it here and Secret Window. I feel like there's another one. Oh, oh, and he talks about, um, you know, as a writer in Misery, so uh, obviously he's kind of putting himself either as an adult with his addictions, or his trauma and bullying as a child. Yeah. And and this yeah, one... Go ahead, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. And I think this one, it really captures how not only was he dealing with his addictions, but this is during that era where he was also dealing with the fact that he thought that he was only selling because of his name, not that he was a, a, a good writer. He, he was really starting to get neurotic and, and worried about that, so that's when he started writing under Richard Bachman. And that's supposed to be what George Stark stands for. Yeah, a thing that I kind of picked up on is it seems uh, to me watching it, not knowing that at least, it, it seemed to kind of be about like how uh, him as a writer sort of having all of these dark thoughts, uh, whether or not that's brought on because of drug use or trauma or just like trying to create the new the new big horror book that everyone talks about and having to live with these ideas in your head and how you carry that baggage with you and like it's just like separate that often yeah but if you and take out all of that though it's still a good horror movie but it, it's kind of nice that they, there's that more of that depth I, and there's some really traumatic visual stuff in this I mean to this day the eyeball on the shoulder is one of the most fucked up things I've ever seen in the movie <laughs> oh no it's in the head right okay yeah so that was pretty gross that was traumatic and uh yeah, and George Romero knows how to hit those notes sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, that's the thing that I really enjoy about this movie, too. It, was, it had visceralness to it that needs to have it. Like, I, I mean, that's nature of just George Romero was really at trying to, at like, understanding how to make you uncomfortable. And then he just hits on that. Yeah. The only thing I didn't like about the movie is that it kind of has just a generic slasher feel to it with him going around killing anybody that's associated with, like, the publication and stuff like that. I thought that was kind of cheap. I was okay with it until they showed him killing people. When it was, like, off-screen, that was more terrifying. Uh, I kind of kept with that. It made you question more the of the main character because what I really enjoy about the main character is he's not really the personification of that a lot of horror movies try to do where it's like this is a good person um being harmed by a bad person or it's like he ha- he has a real temper 
are the, the protagonist. And you can kind of see that if he might do it. He might have done it. You don't know. I'll yeah. kind of be questioning a little bit. And, and we also understand that he has, like, this personality in his brain that he might be tapping into or might be, you know, controlling him. So it does leave you questioning whether or not. It can also leaves you questioning at any moment, like, who's who, who are we talking to right now? Right. Well, and Michael Rooker is, his character is, you know, uh, understandably skeptical. I mean, the funny thing is they never brought it up, and I kept thinking about it was, how do I know that you didn't just hit, hit a tape recorder with another phone, you know, and, and didn't set that to play and just, you know, to clear your name? Yeah. But, um... What I do like is the fact that they never had one of those bullshit scenes which drives me nuts in movies where, hey, these two guys look a lot alike. And then there's that scene like, he is the bad guy. No, he is the bad guy. Shoot him. Shoot him. That kind of bullshit. I hate that. Yeah. Because uh, almost instantly you can tell it's, it's a different person. His skin – at first I didn't remember like he was rotting. But I was like, his skin looks a lot more textured and wrinkled and darker than I expected. I think he does a very good job of playing both parts. But I also love it when he goes into like his trance where he connects to the other side of him, where he can write? Yeah, that was one that uh, was actually the creep scene um, where he is, like, trying to communicate with that side of himself. And he is writing, but he's not looking at what he's writing, but he can still see it. Yeah. And that, that part is just so well done. The, uh, the big finale, I think, takes also a little too long. I feel like it was really starting to drag. It's not something that took 20 minutes could have taken five. And uh, I will say, though, that that finale would be eaten by the sparrows. It was a lot of gory fun. Yeah, that was a surprising... I thought it was going to be some kind of cheesy thing where they, like, fuse together or something like that. No, they went for the complete opposite yeah. of uh, just complete bodily dismemberment by sparrows. And I really in, uh, think the CG works really well for this. And a lot of CG at the time, they a lot of uh, directors, editors, what, whoever is putting that in there is like trying to supplement um, a lot of gore effects with it because it's cheaper. Yeah. Um, well, but it's like it's, they make the gore, the, you know, the, the actual models and stuff, use the CG more to enhance the, the, the tone and the mood by having the sparrows fly around. Like they're not there, but it's done so convincing that it feels chaotic and it feels claustrophobic. Yeah, it's it's really early CGI too. This is before this would have come out around the time that Terminator Two came out, and so it's a mixture of three different. You know, you have actually practical effects. You have um, like the way that it was the birds is where you filmed a bunch of birds, but you kind of superimposed it over real. Like it's two different images put together. Um, and then they use like really early CGI, but it, they, they knew the way they could fly them and really fast pass the camera that it could be blurry and it didn't have to be photorealistic. So George exactly, Romero did a yeah. very good job of handling it at the time. Yeah, it, it's, it ages much more gracefully than a lot of other movies um, that, that try to do like CG horror. Yeah, I'm really surprised though that George Romero didn't get moved up to another level after this because he shows he can handle like a studio film. Most of his stuff was independent, and you know he's got a really great cast, a great story, and, and he didn't even have to stick to uh, just horror. He proved that he could handle an effects movie, so he could have done something like Jurassic Park. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of a shame. But you know, the 90s were rough on all these guys that we really loved in the 80s, 
And I mean, I was watching something that oh, uh, the Mangler, another Stephen King movie that Toby Hooper directed. And you can see at this point, Toby Hooper's just like, give me the fucking paycheck. I, I I'm not investing myself in this. It's just gonna be crazy, and that's it. You know, that's the best I can do. Yeah. So maybe Romero had to walk away for a while. Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate time for a lot of uh, a very direct. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like a lot of pulled themselves up by their boots and like really went for something and found success and then just got completely annihilated by uh, the guys they worked for. Yeah, it's it's kind of a show. I saw that they started releasing some of the behind the scenes kind of like pre-production on uh, Romero's version of Resident Evil that he was supposed to do, I believe, between this and Bruiser, the movie that nobody saw that he did. Um, but for whatever reason, it didn't get made, and then we got the mediocre version from uh, Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> oh, here come the sirens. It's, it's going to be a loud production if you guys can pick up what's going on in the background. There's thunder, there's pouring rain, and now there's ambulances. Yay! Can you hear it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> I mean, that adds, so that's, I think that's going to add to the... Uh, uh, we're going to talk about with our next movie because it's about a town going crazy. Yeah, and I, I love... I think my favorite Stephen King stories are the ones that are set in little... He didn't do a whole lot set in the city, like, but I love his little town neighborhoods that he sets up, especially the, the fact that he shoots... Well, he... Not him personally, but... The movies that are based on his books are shot in Canada, and they have a very particular look. And which, which you know, of course, most of his stories take place in you know Maine, in, in like a colder kind of Pacific, not Pacific Northwestern. What do you call that? A uh, northeastern side of Canada uh, of America. Yeah. And yeah. Um, what I like about this one is that it's <laughs> it's just so funny how the temptation, the things that you will do to get what you want, and. I don't know if his prices were just insane, and that's why. <laughs> but anybody tells me, do a favor for me, and I can do it. I can give it to you. <laughs> I'm automatically hitting the brakes because that seems suspicious. And he does it to everybody. <laughs> yeah. So the basic plot, and I think that we all know this by now. But if the devil comes to a small town. Often people, any the things that they most desire, but it comes at a cost, and that's you know it, it's the monkey's paw, but it you know, uh, being a preacher instead of a paw. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of manipulation. Yeah, so he owns a opens an antique place, and it has all these things that in their hearts they desire, like you know stuff that either brings them back to a younger time, like the 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 varsity jacket, something the kid desires, like a baseball card. There's little things here and there that he manipulates people with, and. And the funny thing is he doesn't have them do something directly to someone they hate. They have to do it to somebody else because that makes them think that it's just benign. It's just going to be a prank and nothing's really going to happen with it. And just like these little chess pieces that he moves around. <coughs> yeah, it's, it's, I really enjoyed the beginning of this because it starts out very small and doesn't really – to the person who's okay, – so basically the, the situation is that there are like two people in town. they got to beat with each other. And it's like a normal – thing where they just sort of avoid each other and everyone knows about it it's kind of awkward but no one really cares that much and then just like just the, the smallest thing just to, just to tip it over the edge like hey kid just, just throw, throw baseballs through their window and I'll give you this you know card that you're looking for and it's like alright well I don't care like it's just a little vandalism it's kind of fun for me and I don't know how anything could possibly go you know they'll get mad but they don't know who to get mad at 
kind of situation. But then, like, him leveraging other people push these two people to their limits without realizing that's what's happening. And, like, that's when the movie really works, is finding ways to just uh, create division among people uh, by proxy. And I almost feel like there was more, almost like a... Like, I mean, he is a, a demon or devil or whatever. It, or maybe Satan himself, I'm not sure, but... The one thing that's interesting is even when they tried to reason each, with each other, especially at the end, there was no going back. You could see like, okay, so there's a performance in this that's so fucking off the wall. I mean, beyond uh, Nicholas Cage would be like envious of a performance like this. It's played by J.T. Walsh, which is like a local businessman who's stealing. Uh, his performance is so goddamn crazy. I am so impressed. But you can also see like he's doing these horrible things. But then he's having like these moments of regret or whatever. Then he goes right back into it because uh, Max von Sydow playing the devil guy, uh, he will not let him go. He every time he starts to yeah. break free, he's like, "Nope, you're back in." <laughs> yeah, it's a situation where he's already gone too far. What else does he have left to lose? Yeah, but but it's like almost like a supernatural like mind washing like push. It's not just manipulation. It's uh, like uh, almost hypnotic. Yeah, but um, the only I, one that's the, I think. Oh, sorry, go ahead. The only one that I really felt for, that I understood why it was the way it was, it wasn't a material item. She was, his wife was crippled. I mean, she was in agony all the time. And she was so young to have that bad of arthritis in her hands. I completely understand why she did what she did. The other ones, it's just like this weird nostalgia trip, greedy thing. Or with the person who's practically homeless and him like a, almost feeling like a second chance life i can understand that one too with the jacket oh yeah okay but a lot yeah, of it was just he, like yeah. he's got nothing to lose so like what does he care if he does what did he did he skin a dog was it that was he that did that oh god that was that <laughs> was okay that. that's that's the only moment of the movie i wish they had held back on because they showed what he was going to do i don't think they needed to show the skin dog like right in the camera I mean I guess from a visceral standpoint it gets its point across but I mean just they could have held back a little bit but I'm also like a guy with a dog <laughs> I don't want to see that yeah. Stuff. <laughs> yeah and I think that's where the movie hits its stride is like trying to make reasons why these things make sense and have these small disagreements being intentionally blown up and that's where it's good where it kind of falls apart is it kind of speed runs uh, by the third act yeah it um, feels it, like it should it be a mini like these small these small things to a few people to I mean, it's everybody and then it becomes like a war zone by the end and that's where it kind of started to lose me it's it's this is during that time period where they started making the tv miniseries this is just where it's starting i feel like this would have been served better by like a two or three night um, yeah, yeah, because it's not a big production. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like it was very expensive, and it's very character heavy. And I feel like, yeah, a two or three night thing would have a, 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 wouldn't have felt so rushed at the end. Yeah, a, a big climax like that would make sense when we like know all of the characters more intimately than we do. Like, I don't even remember seeing like the, the guy that was embezzling money. I don't know until he kills her so I don't really care about this yeah. or anything but yeah so like stuff like that would have been better fleshed out but already two hours you know like there's not much you can do yeah my favorite line in this don't call me buster <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I mean it starts immediately too I feel like 
that was rushed too because all of a sudden that's a big thing and we're like this movie's only we're only like five minutes into the movie what the fuck <laughs> right yeah it seems like they had ending decided he was gonna he was gonna be the one that was gonna kill the devil by sacrificing himself but it's like well how do we get them there how do we get to that point and then I feel like they had to add that later yeah the uh what I also was impressed by is Max von Sydow playing the devil. Now, that could have been a huge performance, but he's so controlled and confident. And this is a black comedy. I mean, yes, it is a horror movie, but I think it's delightfully wicked, like, in its sense of humor. It does have some camp to it in some ways, but it's, it's a little too inconsistent for me. I, I don't know. I really enjoyed them. Um I guess this is like during the time period, yeah, where he was moving to TV because his movies weren't very successful. But what do you think, like, the worst of Stephen King is? Do you feel like it's in the 80s or 90s or now? Uh, it had to be that. It, it's probably what was, uh, When was the Langoliers? Langoliers, I want to say, is two or three years after this. You, uh, I, I actually like the Langoliers, even though it has another crazy ass performance i think his rock bottom was when you know all those short stories were being adapted by low rent companies like i mean i'm sorry i know there's a it has a fan following but i think children of the corn fucking sucks <laughs> i like children of the yeah, corn <laughs> so i guess we're all you throwing but obviously there's also like um a, a lawnmower man is it really a stephen king movie sleepwalkers is kind of ridiculous so i don't yeah, know Just i mean like, i actually i did like lawnmower man because it, but because it was bad. That's well, different than... I like it, but saying is it's a Stephen King movie was kind of a mistake because I think he, if I remember correctly, he even soon said, take my name off this. This is fucking stupid. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, he's, he, he's like a career that just keeps on chugging along. He really hasn't had that bo uh, boom and bust. Like so many other writers, like there was Dean Koontz movies for a while there. There was Clive Barker movies. And Stephen King, it just keeps going. Yeah, I remember um, when the new It movies were coming out, and like, despite you know it looking pretty bad and not being very good, people still it, he's still not out of the games. Yeah, it's like every time you think it's done, there's somewhere else he finds. Because remember he, when he pivoted out of horror, um, and he started doing like Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and stuff like that, uh, and, and Hearts in Atlantis, and that brought him a whole new audience. <clears throat> Yeah, he's a very interesting writer, and he never seems to run out of stuff to say. I keep thinking that he's going to repeat himself, like, in a big way. Yes, he's done a lot of stories about writers, but it's not like he goes, well, I guess I'll just go do another Salem's Lot, you know, there's something, you know, like, where he just cashes in on the sequels. Misery returns! <laughs> right, and when he does do stories that are is a, that is about a writer, it's never the same story either. It's a different aspect of being a writer, and that's what makes those movies so interesting yeah there's still some of course classic ones that have never been adapted that i would love to see and they keep trying it's, and it's gonna be really hard but the long walk have you ever read that no that's the one where it's the contest for teenagers again it's in the future and the only way to get you know food it's kind of like the hunger games kind of to get food or whatever is you have to walk like 30 fucking miles or something in a very short period of time and if you slow down you fall down or whatever you have no food you have no water you get shot and whoever's there at the end of this long walk or whatever gets you know to live and, and has food and it, that was really interesting but they just can't get it made it's not very cinematic but it's a good story it kind of it kind of sounds like I can't remember the name of this movie was it Paradise Park was where people 
like either you get like if you like you're gonna be imprisoned for whatever crime but if you can make it uh like they're gonna drop you off in this remote location and if you can make it to the american flag that's posted somewhere in this barren area without getting shot first because people are going to be hunting you then you basically are free huh um, it's, it kind of sounds like that a little bit. Yeah, I don't know what that is. It's called Paradise Park? I think it's called Paradise Park. I don't know. I haven't mm. I haven't seen it, but it's on my list. Okay. Well, good to know. Uh, so that is it for this episode. I'm not sure what to do next, to tell you the truth. I'm kind of like fishing through some movies, but we're still chugging along through 1993. Yeah, hopefully we'll get to 1994. It's going to get a little rough for a while because we're running out of horror movies for a little while. <laughs> we're going to be doing like seven. Yeah, we're going to be speed running the, the, the 90s. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of serial killer and thrillers and stuff like that for grown-ups. Uh, so that is it. Kersey, uh anything else you want to say before we go? Uh, nope, have a good night. All right, see ya. Or hear ya, whatever you know. You know what I mean.